Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Ashley Kuhn, co-founder with Miranda Adams of the 100% woman-owned and 100% minority-owned real estate and construction company, Blair Freeman. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Ashley Kuhn has spent a significant amount of time in the real estate development world while helping to start one of the now largest real estate development companies in Omaha. As Executive Vice President of White Lotus Group for 15 years, Ashley led over $450 million worth in development and construction. In 2018, with the full support of White Lotus Group, Ashley stepped away to co-found the 100% woman-owned and 100% minority-owned real estate and construction company, Blair Freeman. As a child, her interest in real estate was first sparked when she became fascinated with the differing conditions of real estate in her North Omaha neighborhood. Ashley earned her degree at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and at Omaha, majoring in real estate and land use economics and investment finance. Ashley is active in the community with business, cultural and female empowerment organizations and otherwise loves her time with her husband and three children. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you founded Blair Freeman Mm -hmm. with Miranda Adams in 2018. And so where did the name Blair Freeman come from? It's um, our maiden names. So nothing fun. We just decided that if it's going to be full woman, we've really got to strip the men out of it, including the names. We, we are definitely coming back to that topic then. <laughs> Sound okay. like my husband. <laughs> Equal, okay. He had the same reaction. <laughs> okay. Well, that may, maybe, maybe we can tease out something for the, the supportive husbands out there then yes. as part of our conversation. So would you mind giving just a, a little bit of an overview of what it is that Blair Freeman does. Yes. So we um, separate our company into three buckets. Um, First bucket is full service construction. We like to say, we used to say we can build anything from a skyscraper to a hut. Post COVID, we said from a bunker to a skyscraper because we all kind of need those at this point in life. Um, So we do full service construction. We're class A, so we can build anything, residential and commercial. The second bucket of our company is um, what we call owner's representation. And that is really somebody that is interested in doing development and construction, but really needs somebody to guide them through the process. Somebody that maybe has the funds, the ideas, but doesn't know how to do it. Um, And so they hire us to take a project from A to Z. And our third is um, brokerage. So we've got a full team of real estate agents, both commercial and residential, that do anything buy, sell, leasing, any transfer of property they take care of. So those are three clearly interrelated yet distinct. Yes. Uh, avenues, as it were, into the field. So maybe this question requires more than one example, but is there a good case study that might illustrate, as it were, paint a picture for listeners of what this work looks like in practice? Mm-hmm. So we're only, we're just coming up on four years. And if you know the real estate and construction world, you'll you know that four years is about the time it takes to get projects rolling and going. Um, for smaller scale projects that we've done, um, the Highlander Food Hall, where Big Mamas and Best Burger are at, we did that work. Um, we did the classroom space below there in the Highlander. We've done the Alice Bar um, out on 178th and Center. 
Um, lots of really fun things. I think in the next two to three years, we'll really have some large buildings that came out of the ground that you'll see that we'll have our name on. Would you talk a little more then? Maybe I'll pick on the Highlander Food Hall. And I know that that general development, 75 North, you're having continuing involvement in, in that area. So maybe talk a little bit more about that particular project at Highlander and just what happened along the way. Yeah. Um, so Othello was originally the executive director, CEO, principal of that organization and um, was um, always a supporter when I was at White Lotus. Um, when Miranda and I first made our jump over to Blair Freeman, you know, we were very humble. We're like, oh, we'll just be this little company that takes on these little projects and and this will be great. And we had no expectations for anything to just be as crazy successful as it's become. Um, and Othello calls us um, probably call number two or three that had blown our minds when we first announced and said, I've got this project for you and um, I would really like for you guys to do it. And so we're like, well, of course, it's huge. But, you know, obviously I've done this a million times over. We'll take it if you'll have us. And so we get to the point where we're doing um, construction contracts and getting ready to lock in. And all of a sudden there's just this like red tape in every contract and everything that's happening over there that really precludes us from being able to like, you cannot do this work. <laughs> this company's not big enough. They're not experienced enough. And so um, we basically had to email back the organization to say, we really appreciate you guys looking at us, but we can't because of X, Y, and Z. We get a phone call back from their owners rep and them that says, we'll take that out. It's okay. Don't worry about it. So fine, that's out. Then we come to a clause that's about bonding. It's the project we're working on is between a million and $2 million. The bonding needed to be like five. We're brand new. We don't even have bonding. So we have to email them again. Okay, thanks for removing that piece. And again, phone call back. It's fine. We'll take that out too. And so here we are brand new with this project that is in a neighborhood that I grew up in. I mean, literally two to three blocks away from the house that I grew up in for 17 years. and just getting those phone calls that reassures that we want you on this project. You belong on this project. Um, so we finished that, saved them almost 30% from what they were planning on spending. So did a good job, I think. And then from there, really, we had this relationship with them that is about, I think, just being a team. And so everything from building new construction homes for homeownership to building rental properties to saving houses that were on the demo list and really just this collaborative effort where they can call us and say, this is the amount of money we have. And it's usually pretty laughable. <laughs> and then we as a team work through, how do we get this done? We've done a lot of projects with them. We're building a Charles Drew over there. Um, we're on to, I think we're on house number 19 of new construction over in that area that we're working on. We're on house number eight that we're saving. Um, just, it's a, been a really fun relationship to have. Is there an underpinning or driving philosophy for Blair Freeman? Um, we're really community focused. Um, and it's not necessarily just our community. It's putting people at the root of what we do and understanding that that has to be the purpose of all things that we build. I mean, everything we build, somebody's going to occupy it. Somebody's going to use it. And we want for that to be something that benefits at all time. So we've definitely turned down major projects that we felt like weren't good for the community and didn't offer what we thought it would. And that's, I think it's unusual for companies to um, steer away from revenue um, for the purpose of community. Give up the control, baby.
in your bio, you reference this spark emerging for you, your interest in real estate, um, because you'd noticed, you'd witnessed differing um, conditions, real estate conditions yeah. in the area that you live. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind painting a little bit of a picture so we can, yeah. as it were, see what you were witnessing then. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I lived in that traditional North Omaha neighborhood where, um, you know, there's nice house, vacant lot, rental property with 80 people that shouldn't be living there. Um, nice rental property, just like all these varying spectrums. And um, my dad and my mom are just fanatical about their houses. No matter where they live, they are going to be fixing, doing, renovating until the day they die. And so growing up, we lived in a home that was blanketed by a lot of um, vacancy, poverty, boarded up homes around us. But here you had this oasis that was this beautiful home. My dad was the grumpy old guy that told you to get off his lawn all the time. Um, beautiful. I always wondered why. And I can remember like printing flyers and going to people's houses and being like, I'll clean up the trash in your yard and I'll rake not as a kid, not knowing that there's a reason why things are like this, whether it's because it's a, a rental property or because they can't afford to do the things that my parents could afford to do. Or, you know, there's just all these things. And then as I got older and realizing that, you know, the neighborhood was making a decline because of the interstate that had gone plowed, plowed through in the 70s or redlining and really not being able to apply those until I became an adult. I think I had a passion for real estate from the age of probably four. And it it was able to identify itself when it became when I became high school and college being able to understand what resources are necessary to make it so that all houses can be like the house that I grew up on because my parents were not wealthy. They had two cents to rub together when they bought that house with, I don't know, like a 17% interest rate back in the eighties. And, you know, it was falling down around them and they just took the time and love. And it really was the thing that moved our family from what probably could have been poverty for a lifetime to um, generational wealth. You know, it's just been this never ending cycle of real estate and built environment is truly impactful. And we have to be conscious of how we do it. I wonder if there have been moments in your life, various stages in your life, when you have been able to look back at earlier periods and make sense of them. So, for example, you mentioned perhaps as a four or five-year-old not quite being academically equipped mm -hmm. to understand redlining, uh, the infrastructure of a major freeway being built through mm -hmm. a thriving community. But certainly by the time you go to college and are earning your degree studying finance, real estate, land use. Mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering if there are these moments when you are able to look back on your life and just see the reality of those situations. It didn't make sense to you yes. at that time. Would you share maybe some of those epiphanies you've had? Yes. Yes. It's like this strange ecosystem because I can think of so many things. So I remember there was a home that was kind of a duplex, but it had been somehow split into like six units that was three doors down from us. And I can remember um, somebody's stuff was out in the front yard. And as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, it's super cool. Like their living room is outside and all their stuff is outside. And I can remember them sitting on their stuff. And as a kid, you think, oh, my God, it's so cool. And their kids were playing with us. And then you realize as an adult that they had been evicted and um, that that home went on the market probably, you know, two months later and somebody else moved into it. But it really was a landlord that just decided drop of a hat. We're going to kick all these people out. They don't have the resources to come back legally and do anything about it. And as a kid, you're like, oh, this is pretty cool. And they had just lost their home. 
or um, across the street from us, there were four vacant lots that were city owned and the city wouldn't let them go. And so the entire time we lived there, there was this red tape on these lots that never got mowed, always had crime in them. There was always issues. Um, and there was just this red tape on these lots through the city that didn't clear up. I think when I was 33, maybe, was when those lots finally got all of the things removed that needed to be removed in order for them to do something. Um, behind that, those lots, so you could see straight from across our, from our house through these vacant lots, there was a, um, probably a 30-unit apartment complex. Lots of crime, lots of murders in, in that specific apartment complex. And I remember thinking like living in an apartment must be super cool. There's always people here. There's always loud music going on. Like, I love this. And, and, and as an adult talking to police and realizing that that literally is one of the most crime ridden apartment complex in the city when I was a kid. And I, again, this is just the environment we live in and we know all the people that live over there. So for us, it's not this scary. There's all these terrible people living there for us. It, it was just people in poverty doing the best that they could that unfortunately sometimes came across situations that were not good. Um, and so as an adult, it's very impactful to have seen that thing as a kid, know that so many people were good. And, you know, we lived in a neighborhood that was did have gangs in it. But for us, gangs weren't necessarily this terrible, horrible thing. It, they were people just trying to survive. Um, and so I think just as an adult, being able to connect all those things and being from that really helps to apply um, as I'm in leadership positions and as I see laws changing and as I see ordinances changing um, that kind of miss that human component of why things are the way that they are and this idea that people want them to be that way or there's resting in that space um, just kind of helps to move my career, I think. and reach back and truly be impactful with the help that I can give. So you've got a wealth of experience now in real estate, like mm -hmm. hands-on practical business experience. So we'll talk about that. I just want to ask if there was anything from your academic studies that perhaps just really stands out to you now as, as being something important, an important lesson that you're either informed how you think about you know, your past and real estate now, or, or perhaps shapes how you go about mm -hmm. approaching business of real estate? Um, I think the most impactful thing is understanding the finance side of it. Um, it's very easy to think you can tell somebody what they should do with their property or how they build it or something like that. But understanding the finance behind it really helps you also understand how, what we can and cannot do. And I think sometimes that's what is missed um, as a person that just lived there. Of course, you're like, well, how come they don't just give this and this and this and do this and that would work? And then you get on the finance side and you're like, that actually would not work. <laughs> you need somebody extremely wealthy to make that work. So it's probably the finance side that really um, came in play when I was going through the education. I mean, it feels a shame in some ways to think that it's, it's money that is going to or the access to money and investment that's going to influence certain things because probably as a community member or mm -hmm. you know someone investing in a commercial property or in a home that's not how you want to approach things but if that's part of the reality correct it must be a hard lesson and it has to be a part of the reality for everyone it has to be a part of the reality and when you don't have money of course it feels like money can fix anything um so it's really like this hybrid of the social needs and the financial needs that have to learn how to work together. You said something earlier, you use the word humble. 
And I feel like I want to call you out on that. So, so, <laughs> so let's see if this is accurate. So um, you mentioned that, that you felt very humble that um, Othello and the Highlander and 75 North had approached your organization to, to work with them. But I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a, a story behind how you got your start in the real estate career with White Lotus Group. I think it revolves around a conversation you had with the CEO, Arun. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I'm understanding this correctly, if you would share that story. Yes. Yep. Um, super bizarre story. Nobody ever believes me when I tell them this. So um, was in school and the last two courses of school, you can either continue to take a coursework in the classroom or you can get a real world job. And I was so over school. <laughs> By the end of it, I was like, I'll do anything not to go into a classroom. And so um, it also did not have the opportunity to like, there was no job boards that you could go get a job. So you had to actually go find one. And so I ended up going to a networking event that Arun was at. And we just got to talking. He was coming back from New York. He'd been on Wall Street and he was coming back to take over his dad's portfolio of real estate. And he wanted to get into development. And ironically, I'm in school for the same thing. And so we just got to chit chatting and, you know, just had a conversation for probably 45 minutes. And then we went our separate ways. And then on the way out of the door, um, he goes, I'll see you on Monday. And I actually showed up on Monday. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, at the time I had worked at the mall and um, just started working at White Lotus part time. And I think I made like $11 an hour. I did the first job he gave me was to clean out this. Um, it's probably 18 feet by 18 feet stacked full of boxes. Couldn't even get in the door to go through it. And, and so cleaned all that out, cataloged it, um, found a couple checks. And from there, just kind of rose through the rankings to become second in command there. Was he actually surprised to see you on the Monday morning? Absolutely. He was surprised. I mean, we had exchanged information. So I think there probably was the expectations that somewhere along the lines we would connect again, but to show up. No, he didn't expect that. <laughs> He's like, what the heck? I mean, I don't know if I went with the thought that like, I'm gonna have a job when I show up. I think it was more, I was probably off of work from the mall and was like, eh, I'm just going to stop by and see what he's got going on. I know, but so they're in the contrast, right? Between, you know, laudable humility, but also having the fortitude and, um, you know, the confidence to see an opportunity that you wanted to pursue and to pursue it. I appreciate that. It reminds me, I can picture the idea of this five-year-old you going to people's homes and just saying, here's my plan uh, to clean up the trash in your yard, if you'll let me. Yeah. So have you always identified, as you look back on your life, perhaps as someone who is entrepreneurially driven? Yes, absolutely. I can think of, I mean, I think I started a library in my basement that kids had to come and check out books from. They didn't have to pay. They just had to check them out. There was an actual system. Um, I can remember doing, like I said, the flyer of cleaning up and raking and doing yard work in people's yards and lemonade stands and bracelets. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely had that entrepreneurial thing from day one. I don't know why, but yeah, it was there. Yeah. Ain't no stopping in, so we don't go. There's no slowing down, no, not right now. Cause the ways of the things that we do, my heart and hope. Everyone who here accountable, speaking up, stack it up till it's high as the stars in the skies. I was told to shine bright, you see. You see yeah. I've been starting with the one looking right at me, slipping at a high rate, moonwalking backtrack. Clear as black and white, sometimes we need a break. Human nature don't want to be here and get away. 
But I think it's time for me to start something Being the change you wanna see, thrilling thinking of it Got to be there in the well, however feels fitting And they'll remember the time you chose to make a difference So we don't go, there's no slowing down our not right now Cause we ain't got time at all, nah Ain't no stopping this, so we don't go Not only is there that spirit of entrepreneurship and uh, you know, the vim and vigor of sort of business acumen, but I also have a sense from what you've described that you have a keen mindfulness towards community mm-hmm. and community betterment. And we can argue about whatever betterment means, mm-hmm. but, but your interest is in making our communities better ones. And so Blair Freeman operates with, with that kind of mindset. And you've talked about being uh, perhaps unusual in the sense that you won't put profit as the sole goal. Mm-hmm. You have to make money. Of course. But it's not the sole goal. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a bit more about what is that moral and ethical side of how you do business mm-hmm. contrasted with perhaps other players you see in the industry? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things with us is when Miranda and I first started this, we had never had this thing where it was like, we just want to make a bajillion dollars and leave. (laughs) And so when we run our business on a day-to-day basis, although obviously making money at the end of the day is important for our legacy and for our kids, it's not what we look at. If we changed, if we closed our doors tomorrow and we had zero dollars, we still could say that we made an impact and we paid salaries for four years. Right. And so I think us not having to look at it from that perspective and not constantly being like, how do we chinch two more percent out of this project um, and cut a corner or not pay somebody or, you know, not hire a person there because maybe somebody else can do double the work. um, It allows us to make a different decision than I think we would have made if we had opened our doors and said, $7 $7 billion by 2035. <laughs> um, in terms of what kind of an impact that has, I think it ultimately does drive revenue back to our business, but it, it's not something that we focus on. You've founded with Miranda uh, 100% woman-owned, 100% minority-owned business. And in a perfect world, that shouldn't matter. This is not a perfect world and it, it does seem important. Yeah. How does that matter to you? I mean, representation matters. And if you can see it, you can be it. Even my son was like, I don't think I've ever seen an, a lady build any, <laughs> anything. Um, and he's been around me forever. And so just being able to be that example that somebody can see that, yes, there are women in the industry. Yes, there are people of color in the industry. Yes, this is a safe place to come into. Um, even yes, there's a safe place, even if you don't work for us to sound, use us as a sounding board and help, let us help you navigate your, um, career, um, is really, it's, it's very important. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've had calls from people that work in the industry, women that work in the industry that they don't have any desire to work for us. They just are maybe at a a point in their career where they need to change something or they need to, you know, request a raise or they want to become a manager. And they'll call and they'll ask for our time just to even understand how to navigate that. And for me, it's so 
is such a cool thing because I, who else did they call before we were there? Um, I had somebody call that was in college that's also on the news. And she's like, I'm the only one in my construction. She was on in the, she saw us in the news and she was in Arkansas maybe. And somehow saw us on the news. And she just was saying that she is the only person that's in her graduating class. That's a woman in construction. And she just wanted to call and say, she thought it was super cool. And she was going to go start her own company. And she just wanted to pick our brain for 45 minutes. It's just stuff like that, that, um, if we weren't here, I don't know who else where else you go to that, but just being the first to the table to be able to set the tone for open, collaborative, helpful, um, capacity building company. It's very, it's very cool to sit back and watch. There might be a, a you know, an, an inclination in a conversation like this for us to talk about the horror stories and the challenges and the hurdles and, you know, the misogyny and racism. And, but I think I've heard you say that, yes, you need to be seen uh, and and to be a, as it were a role model in some ways, but the, you've actually found quite a lot of support oh, in the community. So much so, so much so. I think people love that story of like we we struggle so much. We're women. Nobody wants us here. They don't take us serious. We're people of color. Nobody wants us here. And it's actually the opposite. And I don't think we've been intentionally in. I'm going to say in the last twenty years, intentionally left out of construction. I think it became a thing where um, it's not a place that women and people of color have historically looked in terms of careers. Um, but we've been, I'm saying, leaders in the globe for construction have reached out just to say, what can we do? How do we partner? How can we help you? And it's not in a gross way of like, let's use you guys and meet some of our set-asides that we've got to <laughs> meet. on. It's really, truly sitting down with us, showing us their processes really just letting us know behind the curtain, this is how we do, this is some of the things that we took pitfalls of a hundred years ago, avoid this, try this. Um, and that collaboration has um, truly been the difference maker on how our company has grown um, significantly over the, the last couple of years. And it's been just that collab collaboration and cooperation from bigger companies. When did you begin to realize that other parts of the city, different communities, had different uh, conditions. Yeah. I have a really unique background in that um, I'm black and white. My mom is white. My dad is black. And one of their big things with intentionality was making sure that their kids were exposed. And so my mom is from small town, Nebraska. I think population probably a thousand. And my dad is from Macon, Georgia, deep South to this day, very racially inequitable, um, and so I come from this merger of the complete unexpected. <laughs> They're not supposed to even know each other, let alone be married. And so when they had kids, they were very intentional with, you're going to live in this neighborhood. Um, but when the opportunity for busing came up, we got bussed out of the neighborhood to go to school from time to time. There was elementary school. Sometimes we went in the neighborhood. Sometimes we went out. Um, and when you went to middle school, it was the feeder school, but it was one that really made sure that, um, and I, I, obviously the thing that we didn't see in our neighborhood as much was white people. So they made sure that the opportunities that we had were to be exposed to and be around a different race. Um, and so we did a lot of sports, a lot of activities um, that allowed us to connect. And because of that, when you go back to something where somebody is not able to connect a community where people, they go to school there, they work there, they literally stay there all the time and they don't have the ability to go somewhere else. 
it's just a game changer to even see. I mean, it's the same thing, I think, for travel. You know, when you first go, for me, when I first went to Europe, I was like, oh my gosh, these people have the same amount of money as us, but they don't have colossal houses and they walk to the grocery store every day. I think it's just exposure. But my parents did a great job of that being something that we always knew as kids, um, that code switching was a thing, that we had to learn how to talk and, and interact and, and with everyone. Um, and I think when you learn that at a young age, it's not unusual when you come in contact with somebody that you've never seen or something that you've never seen. You've already learned that you got to navigate through those kind of things. Do you have a definition of what a community is from your perspective? That's a great question. I mean, obviously, your logic tells you that it's there are um, real estate bounds and that there's um, usually a shared experience or commonality at the moment. Um, so community changes. It's not always the same. It's not going to be the North Omaha community today is not the same as the North Omaha community for 50 years ago. And it's not going to be the same in 50 years. Well, we hope. Um, and so I, I would say um, it's shared experience in a locality, but also you can't say there because that's, there's also the black community. But when you say that it's, you're, you're talking all people that fit into that population or um, there's just so many different communities. I think it's just shared experience um, and shared commonality that makes community. Looked at through that lens, mm -hmm. what is Blair Freeman doing to impact community? We're learning that one size fits all is not a thing. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we've made in business and in um, the social justice movement is that you can apply one thing to everything. And for us, we like to use the analogy of um, that, you know, when you go to school at some point, you have that experiment where the teacher puts big boulders into a thing and says, is this, is this full? And then everybody says, yes. And then they put gravel in and the gravel fits. And then they say, is this full? And everybody says, yes, again. And then you put the sand in. For us, we want to be the sand. We want to fit in where there's a need, but we don't want to assume that just because this community or this neighbor needs it, that also this community and this neighbor needs it. And so for us, it's about differentiating, um, using a massive amount of resources to help people on an individual basis to move the needle. Maybe um, inside of even the North Omaha community, it's where I think we've been welcomed a little bit more because, number one, I'm from there, but I see that, that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Fits all. I think that's where we're making the most impact. Are you intentional about specific geographical areas in the city? No, Omaha is where I'm from, born and raised, love it to death. I'll do anything anywhere um, for the, the city and the development and the improvement of. So in that case, what 
and I'm not expecting you to be the master planner for Omaha. Although, actually, if you want to be the master planner for Omaha, yes, let's run with that for a second. Um, no, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay, we be the minor planner, yeah. not the master planner. Um, what are the needs that you think the city at large, our citizens, mm-hmm. uh, to be intentional about our society here? but also the business of catering to those real estate needs. What are those needs in the city? Oh, keep it politically correct. Omaha is um, one of the most segregated cities in the nation. We literally, everyone in the city knows South Omaha is where you go for Hispanic. North Omaha is where you go to find black folks. West is typically white people and you may find a salt and pepper of different here and there. We have got to figure out as a city how we start blending that. Um, We truly don't have that. And in order for business to succeed, especially small business, um, and especially small business that's coming out of these lower income neighborhoods, you can't expect them to just stay in their lower income neighborhoods, but we also have to welcome them um, and give resources to in order for them to get outside of those communities. So I think it's really about how do we build pockets of communities that has more than just what we're used to seeing um, throughout the city. And it's going to be tough because it's going to require um, West Omaha to start to be okay with there being um, affordable housing, with there being housing that is subsidized somehow by the government. West Omaha is somehow going to have to get over that. Um, West Omaha is going to have to realize that um, that misnomer of affordable housing doesn't mean that it's going to be a car parked in the front yard and a dilapidated space and and somebody that has a criminal record. We've really got to get the city to understand that affordable housing just means it's affordable (laughs) for a certain population. And yes, there are different gaps and variations of that, but we've got to begin to blend our city. And that's the only way that we're going to grow. And we're going to continue to grow and that it's going to improve just the dynamic of how we operate as a city. Some of the work you're doing, for example, at the Highlander development includes some affordable housing. Mm -hmm. But to your point, aesthetically and in terms of design quality, Mm -hmm. these are beautiful. 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 Things that I would, if, if building a house today, would put into my own home. And when we're saying affordable housing, I mean... Um, I remember when I bought my first home, we're talking $102,000. And for me, that was like, whew, I am rich. I've bought a $102,000 house. You can't buy a $102,000 house now that you could move into. Um, and so even when we're talking affordable housing, we're talking first-time home buyers being able to still buy a home that's not $400,000. We're talking somebody that's been historically renting, being able to have the resources to purchase a home. We're talking about somebody that has um, historically rented from a landlord that didn't take care of the house, that's lived in squalor and, and, and conditions that are not acceptable, moving into a maybe similarly priced thing that's brand new. That I think we just have to allow folks to grow. And there's been this historic thought of just keep everybody in one area and and just make them stay there like it's a horse corral, um, which prohibits the growth of a person when you do that. And so we've just, again, mixing up this pot is important. Perhaps towards the other end of this spectrum, then, is gentrification uh, an issue? It's not an issue I wrestle with. I think, again, it's that intentionality to community. Um, 
there's nothing wrong with somebody moving, a, a white person moving into North Omaha. But if your intention is that you're going to throw a $4 million home next to a $20,000 home and you don't have a plan on how you're going to help Martha May that's been living next door for the last 70 years stay in her home and that you're not going to have a problem with a $200,000 home being next to you for all of eternity, that's where we have a problem. There's, I personally would build a million dollar home in North Omaha. Yes, there are things that we have to juggle with, again, on the finance side of how do you get your resale value and all of that. But if you build a community that has your rental property and it has a million dollar home and it has a $250,000 home and all of these are taken care of and they're um, provided for and that we're paying attention to what everybody needs in the home, um, it works. And it's not the gentrification that people are talking about where we're just going to swoop in, buy all the land, build super sweet things that nobody currently in the community can afford and not account for them. That's where the issue arises. And so that's where that intentionality with what we do and how we do it is super important. Sipping Hennessy, President Sweet, looking like a young Barack Obama. Skipping to the beat, giving hella heat. I'ma need a seat just to count up all these dots and commas. I think it's evident I'm the better man, I'm the jam. I'ma have you crushing like a four wheel monster. Who you know who looking like this for real? Who you know who looking like this? Uh, baby, baby, won't you listen to me? I got that flavor. I know you're dying to feed. I ain't no dancer, just got some hip in my feet. Now throw your hands up. I got the fuse, you make a fire, I'll add the fuel, follow my lead just watch the shoes, gotta turn the heat up, to get this cool. What are some of the lessons that you have learned over the years? And it would be tempting at this point to constrain this to your career, but it it seems that you started your career at age four. So <laughs> four and a half, to be specific. So what are some of the lessons you've learned? Being a good human wins every time, every single time. Um, if you put people first and the people that you will impact first, everything else will fall into place. Um, reaching back is so important. So no matter what step of the rung of a ladder you're on, always remembering to go back to the person behind you to help. Um, we have this, this mentality where like, when I get to the top and I got $7 billion, then I'm going to give back. But there's so many nuggets along the way that we learned that if we just turn around and tell the person that's right behind us what we did, how we did it, how they can do it, where we missed, where we messed up, um, is so impactful. Um, I'm a big proponent of taking the door off the hinges when you go through it, not just opening the door. Um, <laughs> and that goes to that reaching back. I just want to make it so that whatever barriers I've run into or continue to run into, somebody else doesn't have to come behind me and do the same thing. I don't know. I feel like the, the just be a good human just kind of guides it <laughs> in all the right directions. That's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned. You founded this business with Miranda Adams. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, how have you changed her and how has she changed you? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, Miranda is a very compassionate um, 
we took this business. Um, they did an evaluation of our business and they do an evaluation of your personalities. And Miranda's came back as like roses, butterflies, unicorns. Everything is good. She's like Mother Teresa. <laughs> and then you get me and I am like competitive and driven. And um, although I'm compassionate, I feel like I can read really quickly into like somebody's some BS. <laughs> and so my BS meter goes off really quick. And she has taught me um, to slow down because even in those moments of somebody feeding you BS, there's still a glimmer of where you can help them and where you can get in to change the situation to make sure that they know that you know, but that you can still help. She honestly just says, I'm a better person because I know Miranda. And I would say with her, it's probably the opposite where she's probably learned that you can't give your compassion to every person. Um, there are still a lot of people out there that are trying to take advantage of you. Probably learning how to say no more. <laughs> and I would say she would probably say um, getting rid of mom guilt because um, when we first started our business, we've got eight kids between the two of us. And it's very easy for you to feel like you should be at home making cupcakes and putting together Legos with your kids when we're building, you know, $100 million development. Um, and so getting rid of mom guilt, I would say, is probably one of the ones that she would credit me with. I'm so ill qualified to circle this back in this way then. But you at the beginning shared the origin of the name Blair Freeman. Mm -hmm. I know you said during our conversation, that actually your peers have been quite supportive in this community and you found lots of opportunity. And of course, you've had to be prepared to seize that for yourself. I am just wondering, though, if there is on reflection something just a bit deeper, a little harder to deal with as a, a mother, as you know, a spouse, probably a supportive child to parents and family as well. And you have a business partner, you have employees. Mm -hmm. You also have a community that you are born in that you know needs diligent investment and intentional community listening. Mm -hmm. All of these things require, I think, a pretty high level of not only acumen, but internal resilience and fortitude. Am I overstating this? Or this sounds quite hard. It sounded really intense and you just gave me hives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always tell, I always call out first world problems. All, everything falls apart and I end up in a box. I still have me and my health and my family and the things that matter. And so I never take any of those things that serious where, um, I think that when you start to feel that stress, it's because you're worried about the bottom line or you're worried about being perfect or saying the perfect thing or doing the perfect thing or succeeding every day. Um, again, I go back to as long as I'm being a good person, my intentionality behind what I do is there. I, I really just don't stress about the rest. I try not to, at least. There's days where you get stressed about something little, but um, you just have to always remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Um, how you can be successful. And by success for me, it's just that I wake up and I feel good as a person every day. Given just a really delightful conversation we've had and how you've painted this picture of your life and career, what gives you hope and optimism about an improved Omaha? Mm -hmm. Looking at what your children will find in this city in the future. For me, I'm most hopeful 
um, I shouldn't say hopeful, most motivated by the fact that there's visibility to the wrongdoings that have happened in the community, which I feel like even five years ago were not visible. We are now talking about an interstate that completely murdered a community. Um, we are now and talking about what we can do to undo that wrong. And we are now talking about redlining that was intentional and that was by the government. And that, again, there is a reason why communities are in the state that they are. So the fact that my kids know what redlining is and they can drive through North and South Omaha and identify why things are the way that they are and that it's no longer attached to a race. Those Hispanic people are so lazy. Those black people are so lazy. Have you driven through their communities? There's now a voice to why things are the way that they are. So it gives me so much motivation to know that we finally have that out there and that we now can move forward and have that as a tool for recovery um, instead of there just being these completely um, ridiculous thoughts of why things are the way that they are. Um, and so I'm just so motivated by the fact that the last five years has brought forward so much and that there's so many nonprofits in the government even are rallying around. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? And we may not have had all the conversations and it may not be in the textbooks yet. Um, but there's a start that there's an acknowledgement that wrongdoing was done and that we're going to be able to build on top of that. So that's probably the, my favorite. It's <laughs> so good. It's so good. My guest today has been Ashley Kuhn, co-founder with Miranda Adams of the 100% woman-owned and 100% minority-owned real estate and construction company, Blair Freeman. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been great. That was a good question. Good. <laughs> the rest of them are terrible. Super hard. So different. Should have studied. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>